What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Pick 6 Podcast, CBS Sports Daily NFL Podcast. And sometimes more than daily, I'm Will Brinson. I'm your host. An additional bonus podcast for you right now. We've been getting some good interviews this week. Uh, and we have another great one coming up with Myron Roll, former NFL player, uh, played for the uh, Tennessee Titans, who drafted him in the sixth round of the 2010 NFL draft out of Florida State. He was a dynamic player at Florida State, um, uh, ACC Defensive Rookie of the Year, first-team freshman All-American there, also a Rhodes Scholar, and he eventually left football to go be a neurosurgeon, which is uh, pretty impressive. He is a neurosurgery resident at the Harvard Medical School and Mass General Hospital, uh, and actually right now, instead of doing, you know, he is he is volunteering to help with Corona and COVID-19 uh, patients. And as a result, you know, that's just what a lot of our medical professionals are doing. And he has been kind enough to take out uh, some time out of his day and just talk uh, to us. I know he, he also did the Dan Patrick show amongst other uh, spots. And, you know, it, it's, it's cool. I think to hear from somebody who's on the front lines battling against this, this virus and this disease uh, but also, you know, related to football. And so we're, you know, we're going to talk about, uh, you know, what's going on inside the hospital, what, uh, you know, what he's sort of seeing from, um, his perspective and, and, and maybe learn some helpful things about what people can do moving forward. So let's go talk to Myron Roll. All right, Myron, thanks for joining us, man. I appreciate you taking the time. I know things are uh, pretty busy on your end. How are you, uh, how are you holding up there? I'm doing okay. Coming off a 24-hour shift, uh, which is very challenging um, at the hospital, Mass General here in Boston. We have uh, a lot of issues happening, especially with COVID-19, influx of patients. It's going to get worse here in Boston in the next week or so, but our hospital is trying to adapt and adjust and make uh, the requisite moves before it gets really, really tough. So it's been challenging for sure. Well, that was sort of my my initial thought was like, I wonder, because it it's very cool that you're, and I appreciate you doing uh, media hits like this, especially after a 24 hour shift. I know, I know it's not easy and, uh, it's very impressive that you're, you're continuing to, to maintain focus. I'd be, I'd be passed out on my couch, but I, I do wonder, like, what, what is it, what does it look like inside the hospital? Can you sort of paint a picture for people? Cause I don't, I don't know that it's, it's, you know, for, for HIPAA reasons, it's not easy for, for the average person to understand exactly what's going on in there. And, is, and like, as you mentioned, is it going to begin to get more crowded? Uh, what sort of things are going to unfold over the next week or so? Well, you know, our hospital right now, uh, as you walk in, you have to show this app on your phone that basically says if you have symptoms of COVID-19, if you wow. don't, and uh, or if you have minimal symptoms, then you get cleared to go to work that day. Security guards are there at each door making sure that you're not bringing in an infection potentially. Uh, then you have to wear a mask. Everyone has to, regardless of your position in the Mass General Hospital community. Uh, the hallways are, are very bare right now. Non-essential workers are at home, and visitors aren't allowed to see their loved ones in the hospital either. Our operating rooms are not operating at the same velocity that they used to. As neurosurgery um, department, we used to run 10, 12 rooms a day. Now, maybe one or two, and that's going to reduce even more because we're trying to free up the anesthesia personnel to take care of the upper respiratory illness of COVID-19 and also free up the, uh, the operating rooms if they have to turn into potential bed spaces and ICU support. Um, our outpatient clinics are now done virtually, either through video conference or by phone, to call our patients and say, hey, we're going to reschedule your elective case for a month or two months from now, tell them about their updated CT scans or things like that. A neurosurgical floor has been transformed into a COVID-19-only floor. So a lot of things have been adjusted. And 
you know, I think our hospital is trying to be proactive in trying to create space, trying to get personnel and manpower. We've been asked as neurosurgeons to redeploy and redistribute, repurpose ourselves into this fight, even though we know the central nervous system and this is upper respiratory issues. We're still trying to provide the care and support of management of this very infectious disease as best we can. So is it, I mean, I, I think there's unfortunately just the nature of like, uh, well, I, what show uh, it was, maybe it was, uh, Ozark recently, you know, the, the line was like, you know, no, uh, no good crisis goes, uh, on, unused in, in political circles. And I think, unfortunately, you know, the way that COVID-19 gets discussed out there in the media, there is confusion. Like, is our hospital, like, where are we, like, where are you guys at in terms of supplies and space and all of that? Do you feel like you're going to be overcrowded? Are you overcrowded? I mean, are you prepared enough? Is it different in Boston, obviously, versus New York, et cetera? Well, I'd say I'm, I'm probably my myopia right now is a, probably a little bit different than people in small community hospitals in suburban America because I'm in downtown Boston at a Harvard hospital, right. one of the largest hospitals in the country, one of the best ones in the world, actually. And so we have uh, a lot of bed space just at baseline, and we're creating even more of that by potentially moving our pediatric patients to Boston Children's Hospital and creating these pediatric floors being adult floors so they can take on more uh, COVID-19 patients as well. So trying to make those moves, trying to adjust personnel and staff, I think all of that is, is very helpful. And then being creative with how we use our resources, our PPE, our masks, our gowns, reusing them, or maybe just using them one time as we walk into a room, get everything we need from this COVID-19 patients and get out. For instance, for me, as a junior neurosurgery resident, if I'm in the emergency department consulting on a patient with a brain tumor, but they also have COVID-19, I have to protect myself and go in and get everything I can right away and then get out so I don't spend uh, uh, you know, more than a lot of time in that room to potentially infect myself and bring it to my colleagues and, and at home as well. So a lot of it is being strategic, thinking through this process and uh, trying to do the best we can. I think to me, that's sort of the thing that people kind of miss in this too is like, yeah, it's like, even if you have space, it's great, but you are taking away pediat pediatric floors. I mean, like at the end of the day, like it's it, even if we're treating, even if it's being treated well and we're reducing the number of cases through social distancing and that's great, you know, there are, you know, you're talking about kids with illnesses who are not going to be able to, you know, get the, like there's a, there's a trickle down effect, I guess is my point. Yeah, absolutely. Our pediatric patients certainly will, will potentially get a hit and they may go to another hospital where they're not known to that system. They're not known to those providers or we have taken care of them for a long time. So that's certainly a risk. And then there's also the aspect of our elective cases as neurosurgeons being put on hold or being sure. spaced out. You don't think that a benign brain tumor is a, um, or any brain tumor is an elective case, right? You just, you want this thing out because it's there. You know it's there. You're living with it every day. But what if that brain tumor ends up bleeding? What if it ends up expanding and getting bigger in the moments that you've been postponing it because of COVID-19? What if your, you know, chronic degenerative disc that you have in your lumbar spine ends up making you fall, which you get a head bleed, and then your elective case turns to being emergent and you get rushed in and we know the, the, the stats for emergent cases the patient outcomes aren't as good if they're a controlled setting like an elective case. So all of these things are going through our minds. We're trying to work through them and sift through them. We know our most vulnerable population right now are these COVID-19 patients, but it still doesn't put aside from the fact that we have other patients who have needs uh, in a hospital medical setting as well.
Um, I, I think for the most part, we have smart listeners. Um, at least uh, that's what I would tell them when we're on the show. Uh, but and, and hopefully they're handling this properly and not putting themselves or others at risk. But if you had a message you wanted to send out to the public right now, even as we're sort of seeing the curve kind of, I, I think the curve is flattening. I know the models are now showing like something like, uh, you know, hopefully, I mean, uh, only I say only like you know like less than a hundred thousand deaths. I mean that would be great compared to two million or whatever it showed before. Uh, what what message would you send to people though as we continue to see sort of the curve flatten out a bit? Well, my message would be to uh, continue at it, continue with the lifestyle behavior modifications, the social distancing, all those things that you've been hearing over and over again, and know that it's real. Uh, if I could take each and every one of you to our hospital and get you into the emergency department or into some of these critical care spaces and see the kind of effects that it's having on people who just last week were enjoying their life with their family and now have to have these end-of-life discussion conversations with their family because they've been emergently or urgently intubated or they're being flipped prone on their belly so they can expand their lungs a little bit better or they're having to you know, go through all these different oxygen support and respiratory therapy sort of exercises to maintain their breathing. It's very, very difficult. Um, and so I'd, I'd say to those people, there are human faces and human stories to these stats and figures that you're hearing. And so uh, that makes it real. And in order for us to not hear those stories anymore, it still requires a two-pronged approach. You, as a normal citizen who does well in your everyday life, adhere to those lifestyle modifications. And we, in the medical profession, uh, will try our best to find a cure or mitigate it some kind of way with a vaccine or, or some sort of therapy that helps us get over. Do you find that there's um, – I would assume that this would be the case, but, like, that there's some applicable football uh principles whether it's like team stuff or you know schematic approaches that you can sort of that you apply uh in your now uh more important profession than than like you know chasing guys around with a oblong shaped uh leather ball yeah no no question i'd say probably the uh the most applicable part is being able to adjust on the fly i remember when I was with Florida State, we'd go into a game, uh, maybe not against NC State, but uh, perhaps, <laughs> against, <laughs> perhaps against, uh, you know, the University of Florida or another opponent where we expected them to uh, run a certain offense all game and we're going to play zones to sort of counteract that. And then next thing you know, our head coach, Bobby Bowden, comes up and says, you know, Myron, you're going to have to play man-to-man on this tight end because he's actually cleared to play this game and we want to make sure that he's, he's taken out. So my mind was on zone all game or all week. And then as the game starts, we have to play man-to-man. And so that adjustment on the fly requires flexibility, requires the ability to, to be able to communicate, to stay true to your fundamentals, uh, to do to focus and lock in, and to be prepared. And so even now, I go into operating rooms thinking that, yeah, neurosurgery, this is what I want to do, this is what I'm passionate about, this is what I signed up for. But now we're being pulled away from these operating rooms and saying, well, you're going to have to deal with oxygen support, finding the right labs and tests and CT chests and chest X-rays of, of these patients and getting them triaged the right way. This is your responsibility now. Do it the best of your ability. And so uh, that's been a change for me, and I think that's probably been the most applicable crossover trade from football to uh, what I'm doing now. I think in, was it uh, maybe your freshman year? 2006. I think Chuck Amato, Chuck Amato's last year, I think is when, uh, I think we got you. I think state got you in Raleigh, if I, if I recall correctly, but I'm pretty sure that uh, Bobby had got the best of Tom O'Brien, uh, once, <laughs> once he took yeah. over. Uh, it, was, it was, it was tough to play, uh, in Raleigh, man. You guys, uh, especially on Thursday nights, for some yes. reason, they always got really loud and wild and fired up that, that night. It was crazy. I think that reason is, uh, is hard liquor, but, um, <laughs> the, I, I'm curious, like, where does, uh, 
you know, like you've got a ton of accomplishments and all that, but like a 24 hour medical shift, where does that rank in the pantheon of, of things that you had to do, um, from, from a football perspective? Cause I, I would have, I mean, like there's a lot of hard things you do when playing football, but a 24 hour shift in a hospital, man, that sounds like a, that sounds like a real grinder. Yes, certainly. I think the physical demand of football was certainly, um, superior, uh, you know, getting hit, trying to hit, trying to be the hammer, not the nail, playing in, you know, very uh, warm temperatures like Tallahassee, Florida. Yeah. Uh, you know, that was that was definitely difficult. Um, but uh, I think the mental tax, the mental grind of a 24-hour shift, trying to stay sharp, because if you're consulted on a patient who's got a brain bleed or some sort of neurosurgical disease burden, they're not asking whether you've been up for 16 straight hours or 24 straight hours. They want the best of you at that right. moment. They want your sharpest thinking. They want your best decision making. They want you to manage their issue because to them, their issue is what matters. And we need to take that approach. And I, and I try to do that as well. So trying to stay sharp, trying to stay focused is something that I, I do. And when I'm off and I have some time to work out or, you know, make sure I'm eating healthy, um, make sure I'm recentering by reading my Bible and staying focused that way. Uh, all these things help me kind of go forward. What, um, do you have a, I, I don't want to ask you when you think. Cause I mean, you're not a COVID-19, you know, scientist or doctor, but like, do you think, do you think there's a light at the end of the tunnel in terms of, uh, just being able to get back to some semblance of normalcy? I, it feels like people vary on their answers. I, and I think it's all guessing, but like, yeah, you know, we're getting the NFL draft soon. It, it feels like maybe sometime in May people could start to get out there. It, do you have that sense in the medical community or do you even feel comfortable answering it? So I, I think that, well, first, first, like you said, I think epidemiologists, some of these scientists who kind of predict these trends and know the stats uh, are certainly better suited to answer that question. But from what I'm seeing, I think it's quite ambitious to think that we can get back to normal life within a month or maybe a couple of weeks. I think it's going to take some more time because for potentially our influx of patients is going to get even worse by next week and the week after. And I can only imagine what it's like around the country and these smaller uh, suburban USA community hospitals, what they're feeling as well. So I just think that looking at hospitals and healthcare systems as sort of your barometer for when to restart some of these uh, leagues, seeing if oxygen support is less, people are on less on ventilators, seeing that these neurosurgical floors are now being turned back into neurosurgical floors and away from COVID-19, these pediatric patients come back to our hospital, seeing some of these shifts once you see that, I think you can start to say, okay, the trend is going down. This may be the time to reactivate and get back to our normal life again. So, so in other words, maybe like, I guess, cause I think people are trying to pin down. I have this conversation with friends. It's like, all right, we don't need to be looking at the, like looking at the death trend or the, the trend in number of, or in number of cases per day isn't necessarily even telling you anything because these statistics are so varied in terms of, you know, like it depends on how, like how, how is a state increased testing? Um, you know, how is a state increased reporting, et cetera. But I think like maybe hospitalizations is something to focus in on potentially. Absolutely. Hospitalizations, you know, the resources we're using here uh, and how the hospitals are sort of reacting to it. If you start to see a hospital sort of getting back to straight line again and going to how they typically operate, I think that's, again, a good gauge for us at this point. I mean, it's the one we can use. It's something that's new to us. I mean, none of us lived in a Spanish flu time. So, you know, we're all trying to figure figure this out um, on the fly. So it's very difficult and challenging for everyone. And everybody needs to remember, of course, that October of 1918 was actually the worst month of the entire Spanish flu because it popped back up in the fall. So uh, don't, you know, don't get too, don't, 
get too excited about football. All right, Myron, uh, I really appreciate the time, man. Uh, this is a, a, a it's a very serious conversation. Uh, I, I wish I had something more lighthearted to finish it with, but um, you've been grinding. You've been up for 24 hours. I'll get you out of here. Thank you so much for taking the time, buddy. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Awesome conversation with Myron. Really appreciate him coming on. Make sure and check out, if you're listening to this on Thursday, 8 p.m., our Podbean live mailbag chat uh, that we'll be doing as well. You can download the Podbean app to hear that and of course subscribe rate and review get our daily show 4 p.m to 5 p.m eastern on cbs sports hq and uh we'll have another podcast in the feed for you on friday morning thanks talk to you guys soon